The book of Lamentations is found, I really mean it this week, on page 685 of your pew Bible. Uh, somehow, the reason those numbers have been wrong for a few weeks is I managed to shift around the large print Bible with the regular sized pew Bible, and I didn't know that it happened. I would wondered where my ribbon went, though. Where did my ribbon go? And it was in the correct Bible that's up there now. So again, Lamentations begins on page 685. And, and what I would like you to do, if you're willing to go there, in your Bible or otherwise, is just flip through it by yourself real quick and notice how short it is. For being in the midst of a bunch of prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it's, it's quite a small book. And in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, that is the Hebrew text of the Bible, it's not in this place at all. Even though it is written by Jeremiah, that's why it's connected to the book of Jeremiah, in the Hebrew Bible, it's in with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. It's in the books of wisdom. And the reason for that is that it's a very long, you might call it an epic, poem. And really, it's five poems. Now, this doesn't always happen in the translation and the layout of the Bible, but each chapter is one of these complete poems. And the first four chapters, this is absolutely clear in the Hebrew because they do something special that, sadly, you just you can't bring it across in English other than by talking about it. And that is, they are acrostic poems. You remember this from like seventh grade English class? This is where you would maybe spell a word down the side of the poem with the first letter of each word in the line, spelling something out. And these poems do that with the Hebrew alphabet. In one time, they go A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C on the first line. On one time, they just go A, B, C all the way through the alphabet. And so it becomes very clear again, this is a work of intention. It wasn't like Jeremiah was just sitting there and spit this thing out. It took him some time to put it together. The second thing that's kind of connected to this there is why is he writing this? Why is this not part of the book of Jeremiah? The book of Jeremiah is a collection of the prophecies. We'll talk about this next week, by the way. We're going to look at Jeremiah. Uh, it's a collection of prophecies that Jeremiah gave to the people of Judah generally before the destruction of the temple by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Do you remember this? When we did our Old Testament focus a couple years ago, we talked a lot about the exile being the other half of the Old Testament. You have the exodus out of Egypt, and you have the exile from Judah to Babylon, and then the return from exile back to the promised land as the two major themes or symbols of God's salvation in the Old Testament. They are kicked out of Judah because they are worshiping false gods like the Baals, like what I was just talking about a few moments ago. They are then sent to this place, the, uh, the slave land that they're going to live in for a time, for 70 years before they return. But Jeremiah's entire ministry, his entire work as a prophet, isn't during the return or about the exile itself. It's beforehand, where he's basically telling them, you should repent or this will happen but you're not going to, and so this is going to happen. And he's kind of, I don't want to say trapped, but as a pastor, it's like, that's not the job you want, right? That he's basically going to speak to people who will not hear what he says in order that afterwards we can come along and see, oh, God always tells the truth. 
God always follows through on his word. Now, again, after all of this happens and the city is surrounded and starved out in a siege that causes some of the people to eat their own children during their starvation. That's how bad it got. It's quite awful, really. Yes. Uh, after this, and he watches this and he lives through this, Jeremiah ends up spending the remainder of his life down in Egypt. So not everyone gets taken up to Babylon. Some of the lower groups or some of those who didn't live in Jerusalem itself, they escape. Refugees moving to the west. Sound familiar? Trying to get away from the horror. Sound familiar? Yeah? Um, well, he ends up being with them down in Egypt. Does he write this there before he goes? I don't know. But what it is, is his grief. So I'm going to call attention to another story that's completely disconnected. David, when Saul dies, if you read through the kings and Samuel, when Saul dies, David immediately breaks out with a song about how great Saul was. Now, if you remember, Saul wasn't very great, and he certainly wasn't great to David. Yet David recognized that Saul was the Christ of his time. That is, he was the anointed king of God's promises. And so he grieves for the loss of of that glory for the destruction of what ought to have been and he does so in a long poem which I would suggest to you he doesn't just make up on the spot but it's recorded because he went and he he thought about it he wrote it down he crafted his grief into words in order that he might relieve himself of his grief now there's some ancient wisdom here we Americans tend to kind of cover our grief and shove it away and try not to feel it. And the ancient people, they didn't do that. In fact, the general practice when somebody died was to just yell for like three days. Now people will get together and just yell and wail and let it out. Now, I don't know if you want to take that up yourself, but far easier would be to write about it. Huh? When you feel grief, when you feel concern, to put it down on paper. It doesn't have to be a pretty poem, yeah? But the idea would be, again, to get it out. And then this is what Jeremiah is doing. He's getting out his grief over the reality that God has punished him and his people. And he does it in five poems. Now, we're not going to look at all of them this morning, but I do want to tell you about the general flow of that book. We're going to look at some of chapter 1. And this poem is all about the sad condition of where they are now. He has forewarned them about the destruction of the city, and now it's in a horrible state. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. The second chapter, which we won't spend as much time on in this service this morning, but we need to remember this as we go through it, is about how this sad condition that they've been put in isn't just their doing. It's God's doing. It isn't just that things aren't the way that they would have them be. It isn't just that they've entered into a time of catastrophe and trauma. It's that God is the source of the catastrophe and the trauma. It's not just those other bad people over there. It's the one who they say or think they've been worshiping who is punishing them, disciplining them, chastising them. Now, at the risk of, of overplaying my hand, I want you to kind of Give me a little grace as I talk about this next thing. But I do want you to consider the current state of the United States of America. 
I want you to think back to, I don't know, 1993, 1997, and imagine what life felt like then. And it, I can't imagine that you're like, it was worse. I, I really can't. Like you have to feel that something's more wrong right now than it was then. And we can come up with all sorts of stories about what that wrong thing is, and I bet you we can start a fight with each other over it without too much trouble, yeah? But what I want us to do quickly now, before we worry about pointing a finger at this, that, or the other thing, is I want us to see that the sad state we find ourselves in is the punishment of God, because that's the only way it ever happens. That's the only way it ever happens, is that God looks upon a people and he removes his hand from them to bless them, and he sends his arm of wrath against them. And he always does this because they have turned their backs on him. So before any of us, any of us would say, it's not our fault, or why did this happen? The first thing to say is, this must have happened because we've abandoned God. It's the only reason things could be like this, is because we've abandoned God. Even if I am righteous among my generation and have never abandoned God, yet I am a man of unclean lips, dwelling amongst a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. That's the point. And then we get to chapter 3, where we get to remember as I said a moment ago about Jesus and that Canaanite woman, we get to remember who our God really is. That he doesn't desire the deaths of the wicked, but he desires mercy. We'll look at that very closely. How his mercies are always there, always new. When we stop trying to say, we are fine on our own, we don't deserve the wrath. The moment you say, I deserve the wrath, give me mercy, mercy is what he gives. And so I would commend to you, St. Paul, if you want to see good, quiet days here on this corner and here in this area of Illinois and, God willing, in the entire world, it begins by saying, Woe is us, Lord have mercy, only you can remedy where we are right now. Chapter 4, then, which we really won't look at at all today, uh, chapter 4 is a very specific recognition that as the kings and the princes and the leaders of a people go, so does the people go. Yeah? So it was those who are famous, those who are well-known, those who have the money and the power. Those are the ones who are the worst in Judah because they have fallen the most. Now, I'm not trying to say that this necessarily means anything about particularly Hollywood or Washington, D.C., or New York, but that's where our leaders are. That's where our power brokers are. And the fact is that the more that they do not believe in any semblance of natural law, that is that marriage is marriage, that killing babies is bad, and on and on, we can talk about you know, lying is not good and ruins us, that if you have bad scales, if your money doesn't balance, everything else won't balance either. Whatever that means, as they go, so the nation will go. Hence, Paul will say things like, pray for your leaders. Yeah, Pray for your leaders that they would be men of good heart, women of good heart. That's what chapter 4 is about. Again, we won't spend much time there today. Chapter 5, which we'll maybe touch on right at the end, is a prayer. It's the only part of the book that is not a poem. 
It's just a prayer asking for God to fix the situation. So if you'll permit me to give you an assignment this week, as if this were school, I would ask you to go home and at least once pray Lamentations chapter 5 out loud. You don't have to understand everything that it says, but what I would ask you to do is to compare what I've told you about ancient Israel to however you feel about the present moment here in the United States and allow that to merge into an honest prayer before God. That you let these words speak to God what you feel about our state right now. And please include St. Paul Lutheran Church in that mindset and way of thinking. Whether you're happy with our church right now, as I think most of you are, or whether you think we need something else to come along and change us, doesn't matter. Just let the words be your words to God this week. Please join me in that. Do that. That's the kind of thing that makes St. Paul special. Because I know most of you, I don't know, I know a good percentage of you are going to take me up on this. And those of you that haven't done that yet with any of the other suggestions, do it this week. Because the more that we do these kinds of things as a you that's plural, the greater this place is going to be, not in terms of size, but in terms of the kind of peace that you find for your soul when you're here. All right, so then let's look at some of those texts that we heard read a moment ago. We're going to start back at chapter 1, verse 1. Remember, this is Jeremiah lamenting, crying out in grief over the state of his city, Jerusalem, which was glorious at one point for an ancient city. It's kind of hard for us to imagine that. We don't need castles the way they used to need castles and fortresses. At least at the moment, we don't. And so, but if you can imagine living in a world where you needed protection, and protection was best given in a big fortress, that's what this place was. And then at the center of that fortress was the greatest wonder of the ancient world, the temple that Solomon built, wherein all these special priests who God had ordained back on Mount Sinai gave the sacrifices and offerings that caused David to sing with joy with such regularity in the Psalms. This is a glorious thing. Three times a year, Every man in Israel was supposed to, they didn't always do it, every man in Israel was supposed to come to this temple for celebrations. He brought his family. It was a great party, sometimes a week long. This was a culture that was so beautiful to those who were in it that they could never imagine anything else, yes? And now, well now, verse 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. When Babylon destroys this city, they tear down the temple, they tear down the walls. It is a raised ruin. Right? Nobody lives here but beggars and scraps. Of course, if you've seen any of the footage from Ukraine, you can imagine a little bit of what that would be like. These cities that once were gorgeous had people in them, and now they're just trying to survive, trying to escape. Perhaps there's people in the rubble. In their times, they wouldn't have been in the rubble. They would have been dead. They would have been dead, yeah, starved out already. How like a widow she has become, the rest of the verse says. Jeremiah is going to compare this beautiful city to a glorious woman. Yeah? And that might call to mind, say, Lady Wisdom of Proverbs chapter 7, 8, and 9. Yeah, but Lady Wisdom had turned into Dame Folly 
of Proverbs chapter 7, 8, and 9. And Dame Folly, her way is foolishness, and she brings about her own destruction. So, so here it is. She's lost her husband, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. And again, can you imagine a woman who once sat on a throne with a golden scepter underneath her father, the king, dressed in finery, who now is dressed in rags and sent off in shackles? And that's how this city has become. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, uh, don't assume that that's adultery, although it is a little bit of a play on that, that Jerusalem had become infatuated with being worldly. They had these uh, uh, agreements with other nations that were not God-worshipping nations, and they trusted in them to be their preservation. Yet those very people they turned to for help, rather than turning to God, they have turned against her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Yes, uh, Babylon being chief among these, but also one of the uh, very specific piece of, pieces of history, the Edomites. These are the descendants of Esau, who at one point are serving David gladly, are part of the group that sacks the city. And they say, tear it down, tear it down to the foundations as they sacked the city. So those who were her friends have become her enemies. So that Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She now dwells among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn for none comes to the festival. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I don't know... A lot of you are going to come maybe up Riverside. Some of you are going to come on Springfield. I don't know how many come up Kilburn to get here. Yeah, I just, I just come down Kilburn a little ways. But those streets, imagine now there's no cars on any of those streets. And so you can't get here anymore to go to Christmas. Yeah. And so this is personifying that. Those streets now are lonely. They're crying out. Where did they go? Right? They can't come and worship God anymore because it's all been taken away from them. So her priests groan. Those who would be there to preach have no one to preach to. And, and we know from Jeremiah that the priests were a big part of the problem, that their preaching was false. And that's, that's what turns it all so badly. Her virgins have become afflicted. Uh, that's probably a nice way of talking about what happens to virgins during the sack of a city. And I won't say more than that. I think you can put it together. Um, but she suffers bitterly because her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper. Uh, so, again, I'm sure you can come up with something out of our world today where you see those who you would consider to be enemies and you think they have too much strength. They have too much going for them. How did this happen? Why is this allowed? Right. And here, well, why is, is important. Verse five, part B, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. When you see the enemies triumphing, it's because God has allowed them to do so. So before I talk about Russia and Ukraine at all, the thing that bothers me most right now is the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. Those people who for decades have told us there is no God 
and you don't need to worry about this, that, and the other thing. We can change the way we view man and woman. It won't make any difference. These are all just old-fashioned ways of thinking, yes? So those who've said such things have risen to great heights, even among us as Christians. And now we watch the Christian church get scuttled and pushed under the carpet in the midst of all of these other things. How many churches are only now beginning to open their doors after the COVID shutdown? There's plenty that went for two years without having services. And now they're asking, where are the people? Why won't they come back to church? Again, how did our enemies get so strong over us? And I say, it says, God did this to punish us for becoming lax about what we believe. I don't want to chide you, St. Paul. You're great people. You believe in Jesus Christ. You know the Bible is true. But remember again how corporate guilt works. Regardless of whether or not you've done well enough, it's part of our job as the faithful to repent for everybody else too, in our prayers and in our hearts. To realize that the enemies of the church are doing what they're doing and the only solution is to say, Jesus, save us. It's not to say, let's go stop them. It's not to say, we'll rise up and make it better. It's to say, Jesus, save us. Because when we ask Jesus to save us, that's what he does. Let's flip over to chapter 3 and look at those beautiful verses that are so famous there. Beginning at... Um, Oh, I think I have the wrong verse written down here, so I have to look at my bullets to make sure I start the right place. Verse 22, correct? Yeah, there we go. I just looked at the wrong place. Um, so uh, there's more about leaning into knowing God's your Savior before this, but chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 are, without question, the most well-known verses in Lamentations. And the most quoted verses in Lamentations, they are beautiful. I, I think what makes it a little bit challenging is that the rest of the book just isn't quite this nice, right? And so you cherry pick this nice section out and you miss all the stuff that gives it its meaning. The reason it's beautiful is because this remains in the midst of the desolation. This remains in the midst of the loneliness. It's not just that God is love. It's that even when God shows wrath, he is love. And that's a huge idea right there. So again, the steadfast love of Jesus Christ. Remember that the Lord is called the Lord Jesus in the New Testament because they recognize Jesus is this God of the Old Testament. The steadfast love of the Lord Jesus Christ never ceases. Steadfast love. I've said this word before. Do you remember? Kesed. Kesed is the word in Hebrew. It means unfailing loyalty. Yeah? That he is for you, not against you, and shall never change that perspective from his point of view. This is why salvation's by faith, by the way. Salvation's by faith because he's restoring you to his point of view, which is that he's for you. If you don't believe in Jesus, you can't believe God is really for you because you believe you have to do something in order to have it be better later. That means you think God's against you unless you do something. But God says, no, I'm for you from the beginning. I'm always for you. You've just forgotten that. And the more you try to do something, the more you do the wrong things. And so instead, believe that I am for you, that my kesed, my steadfast love will never abandon you. 
And there you have everything already. You have an almighty God on your side. What, what more could be done? Yes, these mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He shouts to God at that point. Now, the idea about the mercy being new every morning and never coming to an end. Uh, I'm going to tangent for just a moment here. A recent conversation in our home was about how challenging it is to think about eternity. Even to the point where the idea like, okay, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to be raised from the dead, and then it's forever, that can almost be like too much. Where you're like, I'm not sure I want that. That seems forever is weird. How do I live forever? Yeah? What's helpful is to stop thinking about forever as an amount of time. Instead, think of forever as right now. It's still right now. Like right now never stops, right? And so just imagine a right now that doesn't have an ending in death, like our current right now does. And you can see this here in the language of being new every morning. There's just going to be a new morning every morning. It'll just keep coming. And every morning will be filled with the steadfast love of God, the mercy of God, his desire to be with you, his desire for you to know that and to find peace in that. Of course, then there won't be the trial and conflict we have now that requires our faith be born anew. It will be something that is natural to us, but this is just it. In the preaching of the gospel, in your knowledge of the scriptures, this supernatural reality is natural to you. Huh? Not from Adam, but from Jesus. From the food which he feeds, from the body and blood that you are tied to now, it is normal to believe that God is always for you. And that tomorrow, no matter what comes, will be right now under God. And that this, again, is what it means to be a human in the most beautiful way. So verse 24 says, we say, Jesus is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. And verse 25, Jeremiah says, Jesus is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of Jesus. I want to, at risk of overplaying my hand, again, connect this to right now. Whatever you think about the politics in our country or the monetary policy or the state of health and medical care, whatever it is. I want you to think that it is good that we should wait quietly for the salvation of Jesus. And the solution is to turn our hearts back to him and say, this that I don't think is good has to be you telling me I have not relied on you enough. That's the only thing it can be. And so therefore, Jesus, make me rely on you more. And just like that, the gift is already given. Yeah? The repentance itself is there as the gift. So you might look to him in goodness and wait for him. Verse 27, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. I think what this is saying is that those of you who are young, who are experiencing this challenge to your faith, you have a lot of life left. And there is a good chance that it's not as confusing for the next 80 years straight. Okay? It may still be a lot of suffering, but I think things will clarify compared to the kind of chaos cycle we've been recently. And so it is good to have this wisdom put upon you while you're young because it will clarify how you need to see specifically who your God is and how you may rely on him 
in all things at all times. So verse 28, let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults again for you this week. What's that mean? It means go home and pray chapter five. Yeah. Remember that this is the season of Lent. Remember that what we're supposed to do this time every year, no matter what else is going on, is put our face in the dust and ask God for salvation. And then to some extent, thank God that it's this clear right now. That it's this obvious. That we're not saying, why do I need Jesus? But it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we need Jesus right now. Yeah. Be grateful for that. Sit in silence, ponder it, and then believe again that when we turn our hearts to the Lord, he sends relief. He always sends relief. For verse 31, he will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his kesed, right? His unfailing loyalty. Because, verse 33, he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. That is, God doesn't like causing pain. That's not the point. He doesn't want to do that. But in order that we who have rebelled against him in hardness of heart might have that stony heart broken so he can pour water into it, so he can grow life from it again, he has to crack it with a hammer. And that hammer is grief and suffering. That doesn't mean he likes it. It's his alien work. That's what Dr. Luther called it, his alien work. But he does his alien work only in order that he might do his proper work, which is to give life and salvation and hope and love and peace yes so let us rend our hearts rather than our garments let us be here saint paul a people of salt and light who in an age of darkness know who our god is and never waver in believing that our prayers to him not only for ourselves but for the entire world do not fall on deaf ears in the name of jesus amen please rise Find page 159 for the singing of the offering.